This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, and particular welcome into part two of an important conversation about the critical connection housing has to child welfare. I'm Tom Oates from Information Gateway and so glad to have you with us. According to the Administration for Children and Families, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, approximately 27,000 children entering foster care in 2015 were removed from their families, at least in part, due to inadequate housing. And when we say inadequate, we mean housing that is unsafe uh, or unstable or unaffordable. So it's not purely homeless living on the street, but it's also a family paying an unsustainable portion of their income to rent or facing eviction or living in cramped or doubled up conditions with friends or family or continuously in hotels. Now, research clearly points to homeless families being at a higher risk for involvement in the child welfare system, and the combination of homelessness or near-homelessness and involvement in child welfare places a huge challenge on child welfare and housing systems. So in today's episode, we're continuing a conversation featuring a partnership in, of all places to talk about housing challenges, San Francisco. And this partnership is between child welfare, the San Francisco Housing Authority, and the Homeless Prenatal Program, which provides housing specialists and supports to help young families prepare, apply, locate, and secure stable and affordable housing. Together, as part of a Children's Bureau grant, the partnership formed works with families involved in child welfare and who are homeless to navigate the housing authority and obtain housing vouchers, working with landlords, and to complete their case plans. We're talking with Kylie Woodall, a housing specialist with the Homeless Prenatal Program, and Jocelyn Everroad from the San Francisco Human Services Agency about their program, Families Moving Forward which, after the Children's Bureau grant ended, became the current program called Bringing Families Home. Now, in part one, we explored how each group works to identify, support, and partner with families to manage both their child welfare case plan and the steps and requirements to obtain housing vouchers and secure an affordable home, and how vital transitional housing is to their success. Again, we're talking about doing all of this in San Francisco, one of the nation's costliest places to live. So here in part two, we pick up the conversation with Kylie and Jocelyn about the relationship between the Homeless Prenatal Program, the San Francisco Human Services Agency, and the San Francisco Housing Authority. And I asked Jocelyn how decisions between those three are made and how they overcome the barriers between the agencies. That's a lot of what we feel proud of on this project. Um, And it was very much um, an intentional, it was something that we set out to do intentionally um, and something that I think others could replicate. Um, I think the answer to your question is really twofold. And I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think, you know, it was both organic and it was structured. Um, So in terms of, in terms of, um, collaborating in sort of innovative ways. One of the things that was really beneficial that we had on this project was that there was an annual meeting uh, that the Children's Bureau hosted 
where these five grantees went and spoke with each other and exchanged ideas. And as in so often the case um, in the lives of busy professionals, one of the biggest benefits of that program was in enabling us to talk to each other in a less formal setting. So, you know, some of the innovations that I'm most proud of on this project and some of our, you know, at this point in time, I think both HSA and HPP have a phenomenal relationship with the San Francisco Housing Authority. They've just gone above and beyond. Um, their attitude is basically, as long as we don't have to say no, we're going to try to find a way to say yes in working with you to really accommodate your family's needs. And that is just stellar. Like, I can't speak highly enough how important that is. Um, but many of those innovations came over breakfast. <laughs> you know, we all sat down and had salads for lunch and somebody said, hey, I really need this. Why don't we do this? So I think in many ways what this project um, did for us is it brought us all together, um, both in formal and informal ways, um, over the course of five years. And we really all learned together. I mean, what this what this model is now is not what we started out with. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to talk about advice later on, but I think any community trying this, it's really important to understand that you need to build in the flexibility to change your model and, and to fail at some things. Like we definitely had ideas that were not what we ended up with. Um, but having those informal spaces to work with each other really helped that process and, and really kind of helped, helped the attitude that the housing authority which embodies, which is if I don't have to say no, I'll figure out a way to say yes. So I think that that's sort of the organic part um, the formal part, I think, was equally important. So we had two meetings that we set up from the get-go. Um, one was a steering committee meeting with sort of the more senior folks uh, who came to the table to make big picture programmatic uh, decisions. And, and that has actually evolved over time. And then we had, um, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but we also had uh, a CQI committee, so continuous quality improvement. We... Um, we're lucky enough to have a really talented team of data specialists, um, both in-house with um, Bridget Leary and sort of a, a policy research team. Um, but then, oh, sorry, I, I should say that differently. A, a, a really an in-house evaluation team. But then we had um, Chapin Hall and Jennifer Haight, um, who were our external evaluators. And so we were really lucky enough to have really strong data power um, that we were able to use in ways that normally you can only dream of um, in this kind of work. And, and I'll give you some examples of that. So, so basically, we created dashboards and said, these are the key operational components that we dreamed up when we set this model into place. We thought that this is how it was supposed to work. You know, we had our, um, we had our logic model. And then we were able on a monthly basis to see how what we were actually doing measured up to that logic model. And I think one thing that was really important is we didn't, we didn't, um, we thought about using data as a way to improve, not to prove. So we weren't using our dashboard to hold anyone's feet to the fire. We were using it as a starting point for a discussion. So if we had data that looked like we weren't conforming to our model, that was, you know, in some cases, a place to learn more. Like, why is this data showing us this? And, and are we really getting the full story? And then in some cases, you know, kind of, understanding that everyone was operating with their best intentions. And we, this only works if you're giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. Otherwise it kind of can feel really punitive. Um, but, you know, one of the things that 
we learned in some cases is, hey, our, our model's not working. And so these data are showing us that what we originally thought isn't possible for whatever reason. And so that became sort of, that became a venue then to take that to the steering committee to say, if this is what the data is showing us, we, we can't sustain this particular thing in the way that it's envisioned. So we need to make changes. And then it also helped us validate assumptions. When we did tweak our model, um, it helped us validate whether or not our new solution was working in the way that we um, we hoped. And, and just to bring that into a more tangible realm, because that all sounds wonderful and geeky. Um, but, you know, one example of that is um, when we started the project, one of the things that we really underestimated is the amount of time that we needed to work with families. So I think we'd modeled um, our program on sort of more traditional um, projects and thought that we would probably need to work with families for a year, maybe a year and a bit, and that then they would be kind of they'd be on their way. And, you know, as some of the detail that Kylie has um, provided shows, that just turned out not to be the case. We needed we needed a, a heavier touch in families' lives um, for a longer time. And then we actually had a step-down phase where after they'd met all their goals, we still worked with them for another six months to make sure that they were sort of well on their way. Um, so obviously, if you've done the math on how many caseworkers you need based on a one to two year case like case assumption, and that ends up work, you end up working with families for much longer, you're going to run into trouble pretty fast. And so um, something that was really nice is that we were able to use our dashboard to say like, hey, we're not, we're not meeting with families in the way that we hoped, but we were able to actually, rather than make it personal, turn it into a numbers situation where we were just saying, this is what the data shows us. Let's, let's try to investigate what's happening here. And, you know, that ultimately led us to the conclusion that we needed more caseworkers because we were asking more of the caseworkers we designed. So that's just one, um, one example of sort of how that, that committee was able to be very powerful. And, you know, the steering committee, um, at the outset, it was a lot of uh, leadership support, and we really needed people to bring resources to the table. We really needed people to make big sort of agent, big decisions with agency-wide impact. As we've gone on, you know, we've gained the trust of leadership, and we've also relationships don't need to be as formal anymore. So we actually, at this point, the steering committee meeting is sort of an overflow from the CQI, the continuous quality improvement meeting, where if we don't get to everything in two hours. Um, we're going to continue it the next week for another two hours, and that definitely happens. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's been a really um, it's it's been a privilege to do this because it has been a marrying of the practical and the academic. Um, we're bringing a lot of data, we're bringing a lot of theory, we're bringing a lot of here's what we think will work. But the CQI committee is also, you know, practitioners come and. Sometimes we get it wrong. You know, sometimes we're like, well, the data and the, the theory tells us that we should be doing this. And then we have Joey Cordero, who is like, um, no, that's not going to work with our families. And it's really, it's really rich to get sort of both of those. So. so one of the key things that has made my work easier in helping families with Section 8 is learning as much about Section 8 as I can um, and developing relationships um, on my own with different departments within San Francisco Housing Authority. Um, and point of contact there. So as I mentioned before, we have a point person, an eligibility worker, um, who is able to work with families right when they're getting the application, making sure that it's issued as fast as possible. 
Um, there's a multi-step process with leasing with Section 8. So you have submitting a request for tenancy approval, and then you have an inspection, and then you have getting the housing assistance payment contract done. So over my time of working at HPP, I've been able to find a point person within all of those departments in case any issues arose with making sure that the inspection passes or making sure the landlord gets the rent that they want, making sure that the tenant understands their portion of rent. Um, and we've been able to also um, be a part of reviewing the housing authority's admin plan and making public comment and really having that public comment heard, um, which has been wonderful. And also having higher connections up at the housing authority in case any problems arise with the families, with getting any of that paperwork done, being able to be like, hey, this isn't working. I'm wondering why it's not working and having them to be able to look and make sure that it's following the process that it should be has been huge. Um, being able to call Dar or Sarah Ramler at the Housing Authority and have them answer questions um, is, is a wonderful um, thing that we have um, at our disposal. Um, really from learning more about the Housing Authority and how they function too, I've been able to kind of try to find any ways that I can be supportive of the process to make leasing faster. For instance, with like inspections of units, um, I have the ability, which case managers don't have and child welfare workers don't really have to go to the units and do a pre-inspection based off of my experiences going to multiple inspections with housing authorities and do things like check all the outlets and make sure that they're ground properly and make sure all the window locks are working so that there's less of a delay than two between um, the unit potentially failing, the landlord needing to make repairs, and the effort to reschedule another inspection with the inspections department. Um, from working with um, multiple housing authorities too, because a lot of our families did have to go out of county, we were able to develop relationships and point people at other housing authorities, which was huge because if we had a family that moved to Oakland or Contra Costa or Alameda or in the North Bay, um, we had someone at other housing authorities too that we could call and we could have um, conversations with about any of the any issue that the family might have with leasing at that housing authority. Um, from engaging a lot in the porting process too, we were able to come together first at CQI and steering and realizing that there's some issues with families having to move out of county with that causing more time delays. And from that, we are currently doing um, housing work at the regional level where we're trying to have San Francisco Housing Authority and multiple housing authorities in the Bay Area come together and find ways that we can help families who are in tight rental markets be able to move more fluidly between housing authorities and um, be able to be housed faster. So that's a partnership that stemmed and came from this little partnership that we had at HOPP and HSA and with San Francisco Housing Authority. We've taken that and we're now trying to go further and work with housing authorities at a regional level, which is a really wonderful opportunity. Part of why this has been successful is because we were connected at, we had connections at both the senior level and the ground roots level. And I just wanna, or grassroots level, I just wanna really um, highlight that because this works because senior folks can call each other and also the folks on the ground doing the hard work. Um, you know, Kylie can pick up the phone and call the child welfare worker. She can pick up the phone and call the housing authority. And I think that's, you need both. I, I honestly don't think we would have succeeded if either of those had been missing. So I just really wanna highlight that. 
You know, you talked about the education aspect that you had to go through, you know, in, in learning and picking up just on your expertise. So I'd be curious to think about, you know, when you talk about those, that education for child welfare workers, for social workers who work in child welfare, what would be the types of resources you would recommend that they go and investigate to maybe educate themselves uh, about, about the relationships or about the needs when it comes to housing? I think that one of the things to know is because of the way that housing authorities are structured, um, it's interesting when we were starting the regional initiative that Kylie was talking about, one of our um, one of our first things that we did is we actually hosted a meeting um, to get all of the housing authorities in a room and we gave a presentation on our program. And their number one concern the first time around was how do we get someone like this? How do we get a housing specialist? to be part of our mix. And the reason that I highlight that is because I think in many cases, what feels daunting to maybe a child welfare program trying to undertake something like this is, is understanding how to get the bricks and mortar housing resources. My guess based on our experiences is that in there, in many communities, there are housing authorities who are crying out for the sort of social services piece um, that, that Kylie and her crew bring to the table. Um, and, you know, there is this formalized relationship where you could use, uh, where certain agencies do have these, these FUT vouchers, these family unification program vouchers. But even without that, many, many housing authorities, um, some housing authorities are able to be creative with their funding to actually have a resource person like this in-house. Most are not. And because of that, um, I think what I would say to other agencies trying this is you possibly have more leverage than you think. Um, and if you're able to be, you know, especially in the child welfare world, if you have a waiver that allows some flexibility with the way the dollars are spent, or if you have other city money, or if you have anything else that you're bringing to work, or if you can create a partnership with your, with your local agencies, um, your local welfare agencies, you know, if you're able to bring to the table a housing specialist, you might be surprised um, in terms of the the voucher, you know, the financial resources for the actual housing um, that are out there. I think similarly, like that many, um, Kylie referenced that uh, deposit assistance is key for this. Uh, you know, as much as it is important to give the families months to month rent, this actually handling the moving costs is equally um, important. And and one additional thing that we were able to do is we created basically a bridge subsidy, which meant that if we found an, you know, again, we're dealing with San Francisco, it's a superheated housing market. No one's going to wait a month to see whether or not they can, can rent to this tenant. So one of the things that we were able to do is kind of, and Kylie has really honed this method over time, but one of the things that we were able to do is really say, we can fund this unit to hold it for a month, have the tenant in the unit and then, you know, have had basically inspect that unit with the tenant in place. Um, and that was something that was clunky at first and we, we sort of worked through, but it is um, another resource that we bring to the table. But, you know, we were lucky to have it all in one package um, and that we had some, some great funding. Um, you know, the Children's Bureau also really helped with that. Um, but there are deposit assistance uh, you know, agencies out there in many communities. Um, there are other community agencies that can probably provide some of the auxiliary supports that we were able to provide with this money. Um, I think also just, just start, 
Um, <laughs> I think, you know, if we'd known up front how much work this was going to be, like, I don't know if any of us would have done it, honestly. I mean, the, the, the number of, you know, I mentioned the CQI committee, the number of things that we've iterated on and learned. And, um, you know, it's it's daunting, but but I wouldn't change it for the world. And I think, you know, I would say that to other communities, even if you can get, even if you can't get the perfect model, um, if you can get a startup partnership, um, you know, give it a whirl and, and, and see how things evolve as they go on. I, I was the project manager for this and I really wanted all the boxes checked um, before we started the project. And we didn't have them in every case and I was very nervous about that. And four years on, I know that I didn't even have the right boxes. <laughs> so it wouldn't have mattered if they'd been checked or not. Um, so I just think, uh, you know, I, I think I would say to FCS workers, you probably can't do it alone. You probably need a dedicated person to do the housing search. Um, I think it would be very, very challenging for our child welfare workers to be doing this. Um, but it also doesn't take perhaps as much as you think um, to, to get it off the ground. And I don't know, Kylie, if you have anything to add. Um, in thinking about what resources I would want um, child welfare workers to be aware of and know, I think one of the things Jocelyn mentioned is community um, agencies that are able to help with deposit assistance and the steps of how that deposit assistance works. Um, for me, I think one of the biggest things is just helping everyone realize all the steps of a process um, is so important. Like the leasing process with Section 8 has multiple steps to it. And there's many different ways in which one of those steps can potentially um, have a pause that needs to have an issue resolved or something like that. Um, and having um, caseworkers aware of all of those different steps in the process, um, that it's not a very, it's not always a very quick process, um, is super important to you because I think it can shift the thinking of the family is causing this delay versus this delay is part of a process, um, and understanding like where the delay is being caused is like such a huge important thing where. Um, making sure that you are able to be an advocate for the family at any of those moments. Um, you can only do that if you know what step you're at in the process. Um, and um, being aware of steps involved in housing leasing, being aware of community agencies that can provide auxiliary support with housing search, um, seeing if there are partnerships that you can make with people to help with that work, even if it's with stuff like credit counseling and doing a credit report or providing, like making sure families have professional wear that they can do to professional wear for unit viewings, like making sure that you are aware of the resources available in the community to support families with finding housing and um, all the steps that it takes. Um, I think just two things to add uh, to that. Uh, one is, um, just again, encouraging people to think outside of the box. So, um, you know, I think Kylie mentioned in passing, she's going out with an outlet checker to check um, all of the outlets and houses before folks move in. You know, that um, we did a lot on this project where we sort of broke our roles and just had the attitude of like, we're going to get it done and then we'll figure out. And, and many of those things have since become part of our process and part of our system and part of our routine. But they never would have if we weren't um, just kind of a little creative at the start. Um, I think I just also want to say, I do believe there are formal resources available for this. I think CSH actually has a 
um, an academy that helps folks who are thinking about um, about uh, doing something like this. And I'm sure others, I'm sure Dory and others can probably give more coherent information on that. But um, I do believe that there's a community of practice that's evolving around this kind of work. And, um, you know, although, although we've been talking about how we were scrappy, we've also learned a lot the hard way. And I know the human services, you know, we're super willing to share, but also, um, you know, I think there are other people out there that, that are trying to create a more formalized body of knowledge around this. That is an impressive array of collaboration, of coordination, of processes that you guys have put together. But with all of that, what I, what I take away from that, the number one is, is something you guys have said a couple of times. If we don't have to say no, we'll find a way to say yes. So it gets down to the idea of there's a way to make this happen. Let's find that way and, and working together. And if there's a lot of stuff that I've learned over the past number of years in watching agencies succeed, it's succeed through partnerships. And how do you bridge that gap? You bridge that gap by walking the bridge. And so I, I congratulate you guys for uh, an amazing effort. And, and just in talking with you, I can hear the effort that went into it, the, the struggle, I'm sure the frustration, I'm sure the questions that continue but then you guys continue. So uh, Kylie Woodall, Jocelyn Everode, I thank you guys so much and your team so much for, for sharing your story and also for uh, spending some time with us here on, on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you, Tom. Now, following up on the resources question, one of the resources I know you should check out is Partnering with Housing Providers in Your Community. It's a new bulletin for professionals just released by Information Gateway. It describes barriers to stable housing, tips on collaboration, and provides additional housing-related resources for child welfare agencies to explore. We'll have a link to the publication on this episode's webpage over at acf.hhs.gov cb. Just search podcasts. Also, to follow up on one of Jocelyn's last comments, we'll also point you to the Corporation for Supportive Housing. She referred to it as CSH, and they've been in existence since 1991, and we'll point you to their site as well. You can check out their supportive housing facts, some case studies, and tools as well. Now, if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, go ahead and check it out. It provides a detailed look at how the housing specialists and child welfare agencies work together in support of families, and in particular, the differences in how they engage families and how much time that each is involved. Such a great conversation on a topic that requires a lot of attention. So my thanks to Kylie Woodall and Jocelyn Everode for the thought and the energy they brought to the conversation in sharing what and how they're working together and with the San Francisco Housing Authority and all the housing authorities around the Bay Area. And as always, a thanks to you for joining us and spending your time to be part of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Until next time, I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.